gentlemen, if I could grab all of your attention please. Um, welcome to Think Tent 2022. Uh, my name is John O'Connell and I'm the Chief Executive of the Taxpayers Alliance and this is the second event of our programme. Is the UK a safe space for free speech? And we've got some drinks on the side, some alcohol, some beer, some wine and some atmospheric music. So it's going to be a nice good fun <laughs> session. Um, we're moving into the sort of evening time now so it makes sense. Um, all sides of the political spectrum, I'm sure, at one point or another, have experienced uh, being no-platformed or cancelled or ratioed on social media. Um, it seems to be something that's afflicting um, all, all, all elements of um, our politics. And even at the TPA, a group that focuses on fiscal policy, uh, taxes and spending, you know, if you have the temerity suge to suggest that the more than one trillion pound government spending bill could be trimmed a little bit, you know, um, you definitely get ratioed then. So um, it's something that we experience in, in our organisation and we've got an excellent panel to discuss the title question, is the UK a safe space for free speech? Um, while we might come to different conclusions about the country, this room is definitely a safe space for free speech. So once we pass over to Q&A, um, we should hopefully get um, a good conversation going after the usual contributions from our panellists. Um, and we've got an excellent panel. We've got Mark Glendenning, the Head of Cultural Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics, Burke Beck. Uh, Winston Marshall, musician, writer and podcaster. And Mercy Maroki, presenter on GB News. And without further ado, I'll hand straight over to Mark Glendenning to get things going. Mark. Well, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist leader and intellectual of the interwar period, said uh, that the ultimate aim of an ideology uh, was to achieve the status of a common sense, whereby the, the fundamental assumptions and objectives of the ideology were considered to be natural, were things that could not legitimately uh, be um, contested. Um, and so my contention is that there is a new authoritarian ideology which can be referred to as culture control leftism, and we're seeing a, or hearing a manifestation of it outside, uh, that has now achieved that status, sadly, uh, within our own society, within the public sector, within sections of big business and other areas of um, civil uh, society. And one indication of this ideology's dominance is that this conservative government is about to try and force through the illiberal monstrosity of the online uh, safety bill, uh, a piece of legislation that could see you going to jail for causing extreme emotional distress. I mean, just imagine how a future Labour government might, uh, might choose to use that. Uh, Kemi, um, in her leadership campaign, quite rightly said she would ditch this piece of legislation, but sadly Liz, um, I like to refer to these people by their first names to convey the impression that I know them, and of course I, I, I don't. Um, so what we're seeing is the emergence of a quasi-semi-official state um, ideology. For example, the police and the Crown Prosecution Service have adopted transgender ideology, critical race theory, critical legal theory. I don't know if you saw the photographs recently um, of police officers in Brighton at an LGBT++ event posing with gimp dogs. Um, uh, now, I suspect that if the police were to uh, marshal uh, an English Defence League event, say, they would not, quite rightly, want to be photographed smiling with supporters of Toby, Tommy Robinson. If you're not entirely au fait with what a gimp dog is, perhaps you could come and see me afterwards and I'll give you... Um, I, I might have to give you a trigger warning uh, first. Um, so uh, what we're seeing is that the state is using its powers and our money to promote uh, particular ideologies. They're loading the dice in favour of ideologies. Um, and this shouldn't, of course, be happening in a liberal democracy. The organs of the state must remain uh, uh, politically non-partisan and neutral, but the police in particular are just uh, tearing uh, that particular principle up. So how do we fight this new left 
ideological grip on our society? Well, here are two very brief suggestions. First, we need to mount a philosophically foundational case for free speech. This hasn't really been done since John Locke in the immediate aftermath of the English Civil War. Um, it should be argued that free speech is a natural right connected to the essence of what it is to be human, namely our capacity for rational thinking and free will. Um, a society in which we are not allowed to freely express ourselves is one predicated upon animalistic force, not civilised values. And that is why fascists and other totalitarians, sort of people outside, have always sought to suppress it. Secondly, we have to go in hard intellectually against the culture control uh, left and to explain that there is a particular logic at the heart of their ideology which is ultimately incompatible with the existence of liberal democracy. And this is because they believe that language is potentially a, a force for oppression by those they claim have privilege over those identity groups they have manufactured out of total thin air that they claim are victim categories within our society. And so the logic of this is that the more censorship there is, the more social justice you will have. Let me quote a Labour MP, Nadia Whitton, speaking on the trans issue. I quote, We must not fetishise debate, as though debate is itself an innocuous, neutral act. The very act of debate is an effective rollback of assumed equality and a foot in the door for doubt and hatred. So this politician is saying we're not even allowed to doubt any position that she um, uh, adheres to. So what we have to do is to try to expose the Orwellian doublespeak uh, that the culture control left used to um, popularise their ideology of authoritarianism. Um, hence, the, you know, they use terms like diversity, human rights, uh, equality, while they're simultaneously seeking to suppress your right and my right to engage in free speech. So in conclusion, the good news is that there is a growing alliance across the political spectrum uh, determined to, to fight the culture left uh, and their fellow travellers in big business. Um, in fact, most of the energy on this issue, Kemi and Soella Braverman aside, is actually really on the traditional left. They're the people who really understand the potential uh, illiberal and authoritarian nature of this very dangerous ideology. So I'm talking about, you know, the great Minera Mirza, uh, Claire Fox, J.K. Rowling, those involved have spiked on, online. However, the Conservatives, as the nearest thing we have in this country to a liberal political party, really now needs to step up to the plate and to defend the values of the open society. Because if the Conservative Party won't do this, then what on hell is the point of it? Thank you. Mark, thank you very much. Uh, given that we're pushed for time, I'm going to go straight over to the next speaker. So, Mercy, why don't you um, go next? Hello. Ooh, okay. Um, so, is the UK a safe uh, space for free speech? That is the big question. And I think, you know, it's ironic we're asking this given what's going outside, which is going on outside, which is in many ways proof that the UK is a safe space for free speech. You know, you wouldn't be able to, to do that against the government in many countries around the world. Anybody walking to this conference today might have been attacked by a few uh, Tory scum posters um, on the way in. So in some ways, yes. But what I would say is that it depends what views you have, in which case actually perhaps it's not so safe for free speech. It's contingent on what exactly your speech is. Um, I think, for me, personally, it's always been interesting talking about the free speech debate and having the right sort of views, because um, I've been a small-c conservative pretty much all my life since I was a teenager. I joined the Conservatives when I was about 16, and it was at that point I actually discovered that, for some reason, if you're a black... Um, if you're working class, uh, 
you're not allowed to have conservative views, actually. Uh, in Rupert Huck's words, you're superficially black if you have those sorts of views. And um, it's been really interesting for me navigating the idea of being able to express free speech, especially in the context of being um, a first-generation immigrant, being a black woman, and yet not having this what are considered to be the correct views. Um, I think all of us will know that we have seen an erosion of free speech recently, for particularly for people who don't have very liberal, very left-wing views. They have been painted, um, and I think it really started, it didn't start with Brexit, but it became evident to more people um, during Brexit when suddenly uh, the liberal elites discovered that there are lots of people in the country who perhaps don't, you know, see the EU as this, uh, you know, beacon of, of um, the free world, essentially. And those people were deemed racist for saying, actually, I don't want to have open borders. And lots of people still are deemed racist for that. Um, but what I would say is that whilst we have had an erosion of free speech, I've been um, encouraged by the fact that I think more and more ordinary people are expressing their free speech. So I know lots of people who would have never, 10 years ago, had anything much to say about gender or about race. They just sort of saw it as something that was there that didn't really need talking about that are now um, formulating and expressing their own views uh, about race. Not enough people um, feel able to do that because they're often cancelled. You know, there is a very real prospect of losing your job for not having the right views, even so much as misgendering somebody these days um, can put you at risk of losing your job. Um, so I don't think there's a clear-cut answer. I think there's still a long way to go, but... I'm encouraged to see more and more people being bolder and braver in um, expressing um, their free speech. Um, what I think is that if you look at the public reaction recently um, to particular events, whether it's the p police, you know, as you mentioned, doing ridiculous things at Pride marches, People are outraged at that, and they can express their outraged at that. When Rupa Huck, as I mentioned, called Quasi Kwarteng superficially black for not having the right views, people were outraged at that in a way that, you know, I, I've had those sorts of um, criticisms leveled at me for, for years, and I, I'm not actually sure many people were aware that that was a thing, that other ethnic minority people sort of bully you know, small C conservative ethnic minority people when they're trying to express their free speech and their own opinions. But clearly, um, a lot of people are are waking up to the fact that this goes on and are feeling compelled to actually say something about the fact that there's a lot of censorship that takes place. There's a lot of silencing of ordinary people. Um, I'll finish with this. I have a lot more to say, but I'll finish with the fact that since we're at Conservative Party conference, there is now obviously a very real prospect of a Labour government in a couple of years. Uh, in many ways, the Conservative government has done it to themselves. Uh, but and as much as what I would say for people who feel like what you know are fed up with the government fed up with their fiscal policy, fed up with a whole host of things. I think for me, there's a real, real danger of rolling back the rights we have in terms of free speech with the Labour government, and that absolutely terrifies me in a way that other Labour policies might not necessarily terrify me. I think... Um, you know, the Labour, the Labour government have no interest in allowing people to have the diversity of opinion um, that we have under a Conservative government. And that is what really scares me. So, you know, free speech, yes, to some extent, but uh, it's contingent and it, there is a very real risk of it rolling back. Thank you very much. Even though that ended on something of a negative note, there was some optimism in there that um, you know, people were being bolder and braver and that free speech advocates are starting to push back, which is um, good to hear. So I'm going to hand straight over to Eric. 
Okay, thanks very much. Um, so is, is free speech, or is the UK safe, safe space for free speech? Uh, not really, but at least there's a fight here, unlike Canada, where I'm from, where it's already game over. Um, so what I'd say is it's very much worth fighting for. And we are in a fight for the future of Western civilization, for British civilization. Um, it's important for people to understand that the Cold War was a fight between economic liberalism, free markets, and economic socialism. The idea that everybody should have the same amount and you should have a command and control economy. What we're in now is a cultural version of the Cold War. Cultural liberalism, free speech, equal treatment, due process, objective truth on this side. Cultural socialism, which is about equal outcomes for identity groups, and it is about harm protection, including emotional safety, including microaggressions, protections uh, for specifically designated um, historically disadvantaged racial, gender, and sexual minority groups. That is what cultural socialism is about, and it is willing to sacrifice free speech, reason, objective truth, all of that on the altar of this fight for uh, equal outcomes and for protection from emotional harm. Cultural socialism, I'm afraid to say, is winning. And people will say, oh, well, we've had the Harper's editorial and we've had the Economist cover and we've had all of the media talking about free speech and how important it is. Sorry, but the problem is Young people in, in this country and also in North America are far more enamored of cultural socialism than they are of cultural liberalism. Now, wokeness, which means the sacralization of historically marginalized identity groups, is, which is the religious accompaniment to cultural socialism, is becoming a dominant theme among young people, especially younger women. Now, it's not just young women. It is, it is a young youth phenomenon, but it is extremely important. I've got... A couple of reports with those guys, Policy Exchange, coming out in about a week or two. We've done a, some polling of young people uh, who've just left school, 18 to 20-year-olds, about what they were taught in school and their, their attitudes on a number of free speech issues. Also a poll of adults looking at their views on culture war issues. And the reading isn't going to be pretty. Um, let's take the case of J.K. Rowling, for example. Should she be dropped by her publisher? Um, if you take people over 50... Five, it's about 85% no versus 5% yes. If you take people 18 to 25, it's 50-50. Yes, she should be dropped. No, she shouldn't. That gives you a sense of the distance between older people and younger people on these issues. It's absolutely massive. It is almost as big as the distance between the far left and the far right on these issues. Political discrimination is the other problem we have. Um, people, for example, who are on the left are at least twice as likely to politically discriminate in hiring, in, in who they want to live beside, in a whole range of walks of life than the other way around. So we have an asymmetric political discrimination problem, and that's also extreme amongst younger people. So we've got support for canceling the likes of J.K. Rowling and so on, punishment and political discrimination that produces chilling effects and self-censorship. Example, uh, in this country, People who work in a left-wing dominated workplace, only one in three leave uh, supporters are willing to express that vote to a colleague, as opposed to two in three remain supporters working in right-wing dominated workplaces. So there's, a, again, that asymmetry. The left is far more able and willing to have free speech than the right. What do we do about this? Uh, well, one of the left-wing tropes we hear all the time is, oh, you don't want to be stoking the culture war. That's divisive. It's a very smart tactic on their part because their views are only supported by a third of the population and the anti-woke position on about 25 questions is supported by two-thirds of the population. So their strategy is to shut down this debate over free speech, pretend it doesn't matter, even though it's foundational to all the freedoms we hold dear. The only thing standing in their way, because the only institution that the majority controls is elected government, some of the time. And so as long as they can keep elected government away from the institutions they've captured, they can steamroll their culture war through the institutions because it's really the left that is engaged in this culture war, and they don't want to have any opposition. And so they want the government out of the way. And anyone who sort of says, oh, the government shouldn't be involved in policing institutions is essentially a useful idiot for the woke takeover of our institutions. We need government to be intervening actively. A good example of that, which the Tories have engaged in, is the Higher Education Freedom Bill, where it's not just about high principles, the Chicago principles, 
promoting and protecting free speech. It's an office that has teeth to enforce that because the universities are going to be trying to dodge that with whatever um, resources they've got. Uh, you need to be unfortunately breathing down their neck because they will break the law. I've seen it in committee meetings routinely. Um, we also have to do something about political discrimination, which is absolutely rampant in many institutions. Uh, one in three academics that I polled would not hire a known Brexit supporter. That's just in one example. It's not doesn't work the same way the other way around. We've got a big problem of political bias, a lack of political impartiality in institutions, in schools. The government has tried. They've done a few things here. They've done the uh, impartiality guidance for schools. Uh, but it's way too baggy. They aren't defining harassment. They've got to define racism to the point of saying systemic racism is a contested concept, is political, and therefore should not be taught in schools. That has to be specified, nailed down in fine detail. If it's not, you're just going to be, um, the activists are simply going to outflank you every time. Last point again is cultural war is not trivial. It is vastly more important than five percentage points on a top tax rate. And yet, all the Conservative Party seems to care about is these little economic things which have huge unknowns attached to them. I really think the Conservative Party needs to pivot away from just focusing on economics to focusing much more squarely on culture. And by the way, that's also where the votes are. Um, so again, I really think the Conservative Party needs to focus a lot more on culture, and they're really missing a trick. Thank you very much, Eric. And last but certainly not least, I'll pass over to Winston. Hi, my name is Winston Marshall. I was a uh, co-founding member of the band Mumford & Sons, which I quit last year over free speech issues. At the time, I had tweeted about a book uh, written by American conservative journalist Andy No, documenting the BLM riots and Antifa, the 19 deaths in the first 14 days of the riots, and uh, it so happened I, I had tripped one of those tripwires, a totemic issue, and there are several of those such issues which have been touched on a little bit already. Um, we all sort of know what they are. Trans is, is obviously one of them. Um, uh, so it seems to me in the arts industry where I am, there is a serious problem which is completely uh, paradoxical because it's a it's a industry of people who rely on being able to express themselves and they are censoring themselves and it's it's almost every week uh, last week the band Elbow I don't know if you're familiar with them British band Brit winning band uh, their keyboard player Craig Potter uh, tweeted something gender critical and within moments his whole Twitter account disappeared this is in the same band where the lead singer Guy Garvey um, is very happy to speak politically against Brexit, against Trump. The week before that, Spitfire Audio, which is a uh, company that produces sort of sounds for software as other other um, musical audio, um, they suspended their co-founder Christian Henson for uh, tweeting uh, gender-critical opinions and showing concern for children in the trans issue. So in the creative industries, and there's a long list, and I have a podcast where I interview various people like this, um, and uh, what I experienced when I quit is I had hundreds, if not thousands, of messages from people, not just in the creative industries, but across uh, the country and beyond, expressing their sympathy and understanding with the experience of cell censorship, and and that's something that's been touched up a, a, a little a little bit already, and and where that comes from, the, maybe it's there's a deep philosophy philosophical uh, f foundation for it, um, but it's it's a serious one, and um, some of my co-panelists have, have I guess blamed the left, but I'm not entirely convinced it's the leftist problem. Um, but as well as uh, the culture of cell censorship, there is also uh, two other phenomena that are pretty important. There's I think I could call it state, um, coming from the state, and an example of that would be the uh, College of Policing's non-crime hate incidents, which um, it's, it seems in July that uh, the, the guidelines have changed somewhat after the Harry or Henry Miller case. Nevertheless, this Quango um, College of Policing shouldn't be telling the police what the laws are it's it's it that should not 
not become here, then they're a limited company. It's not illegal. Uh, they're not coming from a legal place. And so there are 120,000 people in Britain on such lists that if they wanted to apply for teaching roles or carer roles, and whenever those safe checking t- uh, checks were, uh, would, are to be made, those people wouldn't be able to get it. And you can, they, people can be reported without uh, having to give uh, their name, so they're not anonymous reporting. And all of this, of course, breeds more self-censorship. If people are scared of the repercussions of speaking their mind, and Harry Miller uh, got done, I think, for gender critical, he's a former police officer, he got done for gender critical uh, opinions. Um, so there's this sort of state thing, and this ties into the online safety bill, which I'm sure we'll discuss further later. But there's also the problem of big tech. Now, I know big tech is California and America, but... Uh, they have a serious stronghold here in censorship. I don't think I need to give too many details, but I'll give a couple of examples just to contradict my panellists because Novara Media, a left-wing, no one will argue with that, company, uh, were uh, either shadow banned or had, I think they had a YouTube uh, channel deleted at the end of last year. And um, Russell Brand last week had some uh, videos taken down off YouTube. You couldn't possibly call these people right wing. So uh, big tech have uh, a big power. And, and, and why this ties again to the online safety bill is because there seems to be the uh, willingness uh, to hand over to them uh, the ability to censor, um, uh, well, for this case, online material for, to protect children. Anyway, all of these three phenomena, the culture and the, the state thing and the big tech, are working together to perpetuate themselves and make this, this feeling of self-censorship all the worse. wide range of issues touched on there and a wide range of different views as well and that issue of big tech is a very fascinating one with YouTube and Facebook and all the rest of it they're private companies but to what extent are they now part of the public space well um, actually only last week was or two weeks ago Toby Young's free speech union no, uh, uh, who have been taken down by PayPal so it's, they have serious power yeah yeah okay um, we've got very limited time so we'll open for questions we've got um, there's a hand at the back, just by the sound booth there. Uh, thank you, Eric, for your um, eloquent kind of explanation of the extent to which our institutions face, fre- face threats from the work left. Um, you mentioned a statistic which I found quite interesting. I think you said that, I'm not sure quite what it was, but fi- was it that 50% of young people today are, would agree that... There, were, there was some idea you articulated about 50% of young people today feeling, you know, trans rights are being threatened and therefore that we should undermine free speech. If you could repeat that, that would be... Yeah, yeah. Basically, when asked whether J.K. Rowling should be dropped by her publisher, 50% of young people say yes. That's it. Thank you. Yes. Um, my question to you was whether you believe that support is durable or not. Because, I mean, in the past, historically, it's the case that young people obviously tend to gravitate towards, you know, left-wing, socially liberal... Um, kind of social justice-centered parties that would perhaps be more kind of open to the kind of censorship, the horrific censorship that we'd be seeing. And my question to you was, my question to you was whether you felt that that kind of support was something that we actually need to take seriously. You know, whether that's going to continue in the decades to come when they all leave university and uh, those terrible SUs have become captured and then go off and get mortgages. Whether they're going to continue to hold those views or not. Um, the the bad news is, I think they are going to continue and. The, and it's not just university students. Non-university young people are very similar to university attending young people um, on these issues. Uh, now, in the U.S., we've got some. There's, there's some data from 1972 in the General Social Survey. We can compare 18-year-olds in the 1980s and 90s with 18-year-olds in the 2010s. It's it's night and day. I mean, young people used to be generally pro free, more pro free speech on almost everything. Uh, on anything to do with identity and race, for example, they've become m- much less tolerant. And there's been a, a, a noticeable shift from moral rel- relativism to moral absolutism on these issues. So I am not optimistic at all. Uh, I think we're going to be facing, as they enter the workforce, I think they're going to bring that activism with them. And it's not broad brush, but I'm saying there will be more employee activism pressuring 
their companies to take action against speech they don't like. Um, just before this um, question, if we take these three questions as a bunch, and then if, you, if it's directed at anyone, please do so. But um, lady, lady yes. in the microphone, go first. Um, thank you. Um, so my question is regarding um, free speech within the rights, actually, because I think it's quite interesting that we, we sort of champion free speech. We also claim that we are the protectors of free speech and, and all that. I've personally um, been... There's been a cancellation attempt by the likes of Owen Jones, Steve Braves out there. I can take that. But what I find difficult is that amongst the party, we also try and cancel free speech. I've had an awful lot of pressure on me about being gender critical, but also we've seen this conference alone that a young conservative has been suspended for putting out a stupid tweet. Now, I don't agree with him, but I can imagine coming in with a protest like that, he may have had some kind of feeling about Birmingham. And he has been suspended. So I'm not sure whether this party is actually the party that champions free speech. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Thank uh, you. Great question. Um, lady behind. Hi. Yeah, um, Eric touched on this briefly. But I wondered if the panel could comment a bit more on freedom of speech in universities. And specifically on the legislation which is currently before Parliament. And also, Eric, you mentioned a stat about professors who voted Brexit. I just wonder where that came from. Thanks. Hello, my name is Brian Weller, and I wonder what is the point of this online harms bill if it doesn't apply equally to the left? Because I could say I have a very thin skin and I'm very deeply offended by everything that socialists ever say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we'll take that first question first. Um, free speech within the right. Does anybody have any immediate views? That yeah, Mark, why don't you yeah, go for it? I mean, the, the, the problem is that the vast majority of conservatives have no ideological foundation to what they believe. And in the past, Toryism, it was always said, oh, well, this is the great advantage of conservatism, it's not dogmatic, it's not ideological, it's incredibly flexible. Um, and I think we're now seeing, um, you know, the repercussions of having a political movement, the main movement on the centre-right, the liberal right, which fundamentally doesn't really believe in anything. And, you know, Boris Johnson was the greatest <laughs> manifestation uh, of that. Theresa May, David Cameron, none of these people actually really believe in anything. Um, and so what we have to do, it seems to me, those of us within the broad ambit of the the centre-right, but we need to work also with the good people on the traditional left who uh, agree with us or agree with the, 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 the authentically liberal position on free speech. Um, the Conservative Party needs to find some raison d'etre, some philosophical raison d'etre to justify its existence. And the only way we can attack these, uh, this kind of authoritarian ideology that has been uh, gaining ground is to confront it intellectually. Philosophically, That's what liberals did in the run-up to the European Enlightenment. That's what they did in the aftermath of the Reformation. You have to ultimately have ideas and be able to persuade people as to why it is that you and I uh, should enjoy autonomy in this area. And I would argue that we need to revive the, the liberal, classical liberal conception of natural rights. But at the moment... The centre-right has no guiding philosophy with which to um, confront this new and sort of proto-authoritarian, I would say in some respects proto-fascistic uh, movement that is gaining momentum on the modern left, uh, not the old left. Anybody else want to come in on that? I certainly have seen the... Uh Conservatives go. So I, I don't really think I have an answer, but I, I, I agree that conservatives have a problem. When I initially apologised for uh, reading this book uh, that was so offensive, actually the uh, conservatives, the right wingers, or there and those affiliated came after me, very eager to see me cancelled. So I don't think it's a, a problem at all unique to the left, even the new left. I think it's across the board. Eric, well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there are, I mean, the old left, some of them will defend free speech, but I think, for example, if you look at a survey, you ask people how you identify on a left to right scale from very left to very right. The correlation between supporting 
cancel culture and being very left is, is the, that's the strongest predictor. So even though there are some on the left who don't go that direction, being left wing is a, a major predictor of having sort of regressive attitudes on this stuff. There is a connection, unfortunately. Um, great question to kick us off then. Thank you very much. Um, Mercy, do you want to come in on the question on universities? Yes. Um, I think what's I feel like universities are somewhat of a lost cause and I think it's actually quite a racket um, that they have the audacity to still charge the kinds of fees um, they, they charge because it is essentially there's a lot of indoctrination that goes on at universities and I think I might be the, the person who's most recently been at university in the capacity um, of a student and when I, so I did my undergrad graduate at Queen Mary and then I did my master's at Oxford and I remember meeting a few weeks into Oxford um, when I was doing my master's a young guy who was probably a Tory prime minister in waiting he's what you'd you'd expect he was you know young very middle class you know very posh um, what you'd consider posh and he came up to me and he said how have you gone about telling people you're a Tory Um, bearing in mind this guy was doing PPE, which is, you know, the, that, that's where Tory prime ministers are made, isn't it? You know, something like a third of prime ministers have gone to Oxford to do PPE. So you'd think if anywhere in the country, this is somewhere, you know, where people might expect that there, there might be some Tory views. And he said, I'm, I'm too scared to. I've, I've been in some of my seminars and I don't feel brave enough to tell people I'm actually a Tory. And I just thought, you know, wow, if even in sort of the, the place where Tory prime ministers, the university course, are made, people are terrified, essentially, of revealing that they have conservative values, then what, 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 what about working class people going to, you know, ordinary universities who don't have the confidence to articulate themselves when it comes to many things, um, let alone articulate that they have these controversial views, which they might then... Um, be be called a racist or, or a bigot force and I think the only solution really as much as I hate um, legislation and the state meddling in everybody's affairs I do think there needs to be in legislation some very very clear laws as to how <laughs> you, you mentioned this Eric and um, you alluded to this about what can and cannot be taught as if it is true um, because there's no acknowledgement that so many of the, the the ideas are contested, that they're taught as if, you know, this is what you have to learn if you want to be a good person, rather than these are some ideas that some people happen to believe and you can disagree with them. I think the only way to get around that is in legislation, because I can't see that happening in a, in natural, in a natural way. Uh, Eric? Yeah, no, I'll just say on the uh, university, the Higher Education Freedom Bill, which I have been involved with and I think is a hugely important piece of legislation. Um, just on the professor opinion, uh, I've done numerous surveys. And, and so, for example, in the UK, we did a YouGov survey that's based not on self-selecting people, self-selecting into the sample. So this is, this is a, not a biased sample. Um, only two in ten social sciences and humanities professors who voted Brexit said that they would uh, admit that to a colleague. So, you know, you've got self-censorship on the scale of about 80%. It's not 90% in the U.S. with Trump-supporting academics, but it's 80%, so it's pretty high. Um, you don't have uh, open debate on, on many of these questions. Now, why do we need legislation? I mean, can't the marketplace of ideas sort this out? Well, no, it can't, because... Whenever, when you have something like a tech firm, you're not going to create another Google easily. The barriers to entry to creating these monopolies are enormous. Likewise with universities, the reputations, the endowments, the, the alumni, all of this sort of ingrains a kind of pecking order that's very difficult to dislodge with new entrants. And so it has to be done through legislation. And just, again, governments can protect liberty because we've got three layers to society, governments, institutions, and individuals. If the institutions are repressing the individuals, the only way out is for the government to step in and sort of prevent these institutions from repressing individuals. That's the situation we're in now. So, yeah, we absolutely need this bill. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, Winston, can I turn to the uh, online palms bill? You, yeah. you, you mentioned it in comments. I wonder if you could expand on it um, in relation to the question. Well, uh, 
Sarah Vine wrote in the mail yesterday that social media was like the Pied Piper of, uh, for, for our children, uh, uh, leading, them, leading them away. And yet she also argued that we need to support the online harm, uh, safety bill, which would give the power to uh, big tech to lead the censorship. But that would be like going to a whole group of Pied Pipers and asking them to take control of the situation. They have proved that they do not have the moral gumption, the moral capacity to make such, to defend, uh, they can't be in charge of censorship. And it's, they've proved that they can't, they can't do that. So I don't think that's a solution. And I think the online harms bill, and actually if you look at the, I described the College of Policing, Quango, that if you trace it all the way back, starts with Stephen Lawrence's racist murder, murder in 1993, and it gets all the way to a point where Harry Miller is arrested for having gender-critical opinions. And the same thing will happen if the online uh, harms bill comes through, safety bill. Eventually, we're going to have r- ridiculous arrests made, and so it's not the right direction to go for them. I would argue that the right direction is to support parents and to work out a way that we give parents the support directly. Now, I'm not quite sure how to do that. I haven't got any experience in that, but I would say maybe it's something like bringing in limitations on if, if under-18s are buying phones or c- computers, they have to have certain software installed on, on that uh, product um, that w- would do the censoring, but not that it can't be uh, big tech in Silicon Valley. Thank you very much. Um, Mark? You've got some views on this bill, haven't you? Uh, 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 certainly. I mean, it, it is it's so incredible, I just have to repeat this, that the Conservatives uh, are going down this road. The, the, a lot of the, 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 the bill was proposed by the, the Law Commission for England and Wales. This is an organisation that adheres to critical legal theory, which is a sort of neo-Marxian uh, idea that uh, the whole of the legal system is... Um, uh, controlled by those with power, and I, I really don't understand what Boris and Nadine Dorries were doing in seeking to uh, impose this um, upon um, our society. Um, I mean, Winston raises the interesting question of children. I, I, you know, it used to be said that the last resort of a bounder was to engage in jingoistic rhetoric. Now it seems to me that the last resort of a bounder in relation to this are people who use children to justifying to justify censoring adults. The whole age verification aspect of this bill will mean that um, adults will have their capacity uh, to, to Google um, uh, limited... Uh, because every, the, the, the big tech companies uh, and, and Ofcom will be obsessed about trying to prevent uh, so-called harmful material uh, uh, being seen uh, by young people. Um, the whole notion that you can be made unsafe by looking at a computer screen, I would challenge as somebody you know, who believes that essentially we as individuals have agency. There is no way... Uh, being exposed to a particular viewpoint or or seeing some unpleasant imagery uh, can in any way harm you, can actually make you unsafe. But because the centre-right has broadly adopted uh, and taken um, the whole new left idea that power is not about physicality, it's not about physical aggression, it it can actually manifest itself through... um, uh, through language. Can I just ask? Sorry, can I just ask? Are you referring to adults or children or both? In terms I, I, of I'm, I'm referring to both. I do not I, believe. I, I vehemently disagree. I know. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do. You know, Mo- Molly Russell. That's her name. Is the name yeah. of the, You know, her, her father would very much disagree that she, you can't yep. be harmed by looking at. Her. I know, and I, I disagree with that. Um, <laughs> but I think there are a whole range of other issues there. But hang on a second. It wasn't what was yeah, seen yeah. that uh, that. Actually, there's no deterministic relationship between what a person, whether they be a teenager or an adult, what have they to see on the screen and what they do. So I have to disagree with you there, okay. because if you, let's say, Helen Joyce argues this very well in Trans, her book, it's you have kids going online, I, I also argued it by Abigail Schreier in Irreversible Damage, 
kids going online into these YouTube wormholes and getting obsessed with, and it's not self-harm anymore, it's transitioning, but that is the effect of getting locked in these algorithms and it is manipulating their minds. They're completely vulnerable. And so th where the, these people are right is the children are actually being harmed by being left to run free on the internet and they're discovering all sorts of terrible ideas and that is a problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, Eric, you had a... Yeah. Um, I, I have, I'm not a free speech absolutist on these issues, but all of these are empirical questions that can be investigated using social science, but using proper quantitative or experimental methods. I almost never see that happening. I mean, so for example, if a claim is made that certain kinds of anti-vax messaging is leading to low vaccine take up leading to people dying that's plausible and if, if it's a serious cause of death then then maybe we can talk about restrictions that's got to be proven though i think to a pretty high level so we're always making i do think there's a real absence of proper quantitative studying of what are the actual harmful effects because we know for example with violent video games there were there's big moral panic about it didn't show up in the studies that that actually created violence so i think what you're saying is totally plausible and i totally buy it I, but i'm just thinking we need proper evidence here and not somebody's sentiment about, oh yeah, this could harm somebody and lead to, to more people not taking up a vaccine. We need to have sort of you know, more evidence, that's what I'd say. I feel like we could have had a whole session on the field <laughs> itself. Um, I want to take another round of questions because we've only got ten minutes left to chat who, um, and then the other guy next to us there, right? Uh, can everyone hear me right? Great. So my question is, to what extent would the panel agree that those who have anti-free speech attitudes are effectively anti-democracy, in the sense where they're trying to use violent oppression to prevent people from acting peacefully through democratic means? And therefore, how do we address that? Because the current legislation seems to put duties to people to uphold free speech, which effectively means that to anyone who has an opposition opinion, it's a sense that they can see what they can get away with. So... If they do things wrong, the restoration is essentially that the event goes ahead. Not that the people who try to block it are actively punished and disincentivized from doing so. All right, thank you. And there was the gentleman just two in. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I'm a Tory voting Leave voter who works in a Liverpool university uh, and teach politics. Um, and thank you. If only my manager felt the same. Um, and I'd just like to stick up for the students, actually, because... The, we've had this push for decolonisation, for, for reading list management from the staff and from higher up and from some of my colleagues. But when it comes to the bits where the students need to get involved and see it through, it doesn't happen. They're either indifferent or not enough of them engaged and it falls by the wayside. Um, and I, I regularly get students who say to me, I like your modules because we have a debate and that doesn't happen in, in some of the other seminars. Um, so I guess I'd just like to stick up for the students and maybe say, as the right, we shouldn't write off universities because there's still to play for, I think. It's, we need to be rigorous and we need to kind of fight back. All right, thank you. Um, there's, a there's a lady just there in glasses. Yeah. That, the start of that question sounded a bit like therapy, to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, yeah, my question's actually quite re related to the previous one on academia. Um, uh, speaking to uh, friends teaching in universities, they also talk about the issue of precarious contracts, uh, teaching contracts, lecture contracts, which feeds into the self-censorship in terms of the staff. So I wondered if the panel uh, thought that if there were sort of more stable, stable contracts within universities that might allow the staff to feel more confident. Um, and you know what, we'll take one more just because we're so pushed for time. This, this gentleman here. Yeah, just on the question, is the UK a safe space for free speech? I would say, no, it's not. And I'd give two specific examples. One is the cons this Conservative government, or the, uh, a few years ago, introduced the Prevent programme, which has a chilling effect on free speech among young Muslims, especially at university. Anyone who, any young Muslim student who criticises Western foreign policy considers themselves a potential terror suspect and we see the prevent program in our schools as well in terms of labeling young children uh, two years ago gavin williamson when education secretary said that the universities had to implement the ihra definition of anti-semitism or risk losing their funding now that is a strong tough 
anti, uh, move against anti-Semitism. I'm not disagreeing with that. But there's no doubt that it does restrict what people can say about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And just, uh, Eric, just today you, you said, I don't think systemic racism should be taught in school. That sounds like you're against free speech. I'm not, you, you didn't say I'm against this being debated or discussed. You said I'm against this, this being taught in school at all. And you're saying it's not even a discussion that can be had in our classrooms. And surely that's against free speech. Well, um, we won't take those questions in order. We'll go straight to Eric. Yeah, well, I'll just come right back on this one. I, I think that if you're going to teach systemic racism, you teach it as one theory that has critics and you teach the other side of it, right? What I object to is teaching children that, you know, is essentially the systemic the theory of systemic racism, which holds that all disparities of outcome between races are the result of some sort of systemic power structures or that are in, resulting in these, instead of alternative explanations for those gaps, right? It's teaching that as truth. If somebody doesn't write that correctly on an exam, they get marked down. That's what I'm talking about. And it's an absolutely reason. I, want, I teach critical race theory in my classes as one point of view and against another point I teach it perfectly neutrally that's that's okay if I if we could have trust teachers to do that absolutely fine it's a legitimate theory we can have a conversation about theory um, IHRA I totally agree with you and I agree with you on prevent so hundred percent on those um, we had a question on well I was just going to address this university question um, uh, I, you know, I agree that, that students are interested in learning. Uh, however, it's, it's a range. Um, and as somebody who's you know, seen student activism and been on the brunt of that, including internal complaints, et cetera, et cetera, hauled into uh, all kinds of investigations, um, I would say you know, if you look at the breakdown of, of, of political opinion in students, about 15% conservative here in Britain amongst academics. It's about 5% conservative. You've got a huge... Imbalance, which is fine. People are allowed whatever views they are, but there's a tremendous, I would argue, peer pressure. Um, and I, I mean, the, the data really suggests that a lot of students are pretty intolerant, even though there might be some that do want to learn. I just think they're coming to university without any background in uh, the traditions of freedom of speech. U.S. studies show, for example, that students that have been taught about the First Amendment uh, in school have much more pro-free speech attitudes. We're not doing any of that. And so by the time they come to university, I, I, you know, I, I think it's not lost, but we've got a long, long way to go. And do you think stability of contracts would help? Um, yes, yes, I think those are good things, but I think they're marginal. I mean, I think by all means I support them. And I think some of the U.S. legislation, people like dissent, not dissent, they're trying to get rid of tenure in some U.S. states. I think it's a dumb idea. Um, but I don't think that on its own is going to make much difference because the institutional pressure, uh, the peer pressure is so strong uh, in favor of cultural socialism and that, that just tweaking that is not going to make much difference. Um, Mercy, um, there was a sort of reason to be optimistic and it kind of reminded me of what you were saying in your if you take students as a proxy for young people do we have reasons to be a bit more optimistic <laughs> I don't think we do sadly <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, uh, I mean let's put it this way I know there are lots of younger I mean you, you just have to look at Tory party conference I know there are lots of young enthusiastic people who are very pro free speech um, I just think that there are an, an over uh, there are an, uh, an overwhelming number of young left wing people, and uh, they have a platform. They have the platform. They hold the cards, sadly. And I think we need to implement all these measures we're talking about today um, to strengthen free speech, so that people who are young people who are pro free speech can have an equal platform to voice their opinions as well. I'm not very optimistic, sadly. Winston, how about you? Uh, I am not particularly optimistic, <laughs> but I'd like to... Uh, we've still got Please time to address do. the yeah. curly-haired fellas uh, question. I didn't quite make it out, but I think it was something like do if people who don't believe in free speech do not believe in democracy. And, and there's another side, which I, uh, uh, element of anti-free speech in this country that exists that is worth mentioning, which is uh, we saw with The Lady of Heaven a sheer film and uh, Cineworld and another cinema chain dropped it uh, because of protesters. And, of course, Salman Rushdie, although he was attacked in Chautauqua, upstate New York, he is 
a British citizen, Sir Salman Rushdie, and uh, the fatwa issued against him was a fatwa issued against a British citizen. And one of the consequences of this, and this is someone I spoke to recently, is called Yasmin Mohammed, a uh, former Muslim writer, could not get published uh, in the UK because her, uh, the publishers were worried, or they would just cite Salman Rushdie. They would just say those two words, Salman Rushdie, we're not, it's not worth the risk to us to publish for that uh, reason. And so essentially we've internalized Islamic blasphemy laws, and that is a pretty serious issue uh, to add to the pile. Um, Mark, um, are people who are anti-free speech anti-democratic? And if so, what do we do about it? Yes, I think there is a logic I tried to explain in my comments at the heart of this new leftism, which once you see language as being in some way um, connected to the concept of power, you divorce it from physical reality. Um, Language is not a physical form of power. And once the, because the left believe that language is a form of power, then in fact they give themselves license basically to censor anything they don't happen to like uh, and say this is now off limits in terms of democratic debate. So we must respect, of course, their right to think that and to say that. What they don't have a right to do is to uh, impose that through the College of Policing and all the other kind of institutions uh, they now control. And we need to, as it were, call it out as a vicious new form of authoritarianism. I believe that because of the kind of cultural changes that Eric has alluded to and also Winston, we're at a very dangerous moment. Um, because if the culture carries on changing in this way, um, as it did in for other societies that, say, went down the road of, of fascism in the interwar period, the... These revolutions didn't just suddenly happen. They were the result of the culture fundamentally changing in an illiberal uh, direction. And that is why we've got no option but to take this on, to do our best. People in Iran are fighting this fight against the morality police and the regime in much more terrible conditions, obviously, than we are at the moment uh, here. People who were taking on theatre theocratic irrationalism in the medieval period and paved the way for the Reformation and the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment risked their lives for free speech. Uh, luckily, we don't have to do that yet. But we have no alternative but to fight this fight. We might lose it. It might be all uh, impossible. But I, I don't think that is the case. Things change over time. At the moment, there is an illiberal zeitgeist which has the momentum but if we do nothing, like this government has been doing absolutely nothing to confront this, using its potential power to do good, it's done very little other than the higher education stuff, um, then of course we're going to lose. But I want to fight this fight. And I think there are a lot of people out there who also want to do that. Um, so we're going to have two more points. Uh, Eric? Well, what I would say, the other point I should say, just about on the conservatives, um, the survey data that I've collected will be publishing in the PX report shows that uh, there's two anti-woke for every one woke on these culture war issues, that these issues divide the left and unite the right. They are a perfect issue for conservative parties to mobilize on. We've seen that in the U.S. with the Glenn Youngkin campaign in Virginia. We've seen it with Ron DeSantis. I do not understand what the conservatives are doing. I mean, it is such an easy, open goal, and they're just not doing it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to take perhaps a Kenny Badnock, somebody like that, to come in and really sort of capitalize on this issue. It needs to be done. Okay, final word to Winston. I'm not sure if this is a, a hopeful ending or an unhopeful ending, but if you look at the court case of Maya Forstater um, winning uh, her gender-critical opinions being deemed... Uh, protected belief under the Equality Act 2010, as with Alison Bailey, the barrister, and uh, she was one of the co-founders of LGB Alliance. Uh, she also has found her gender critical beliefs uh, were defended under the Equality Act 2010. But the fact that, that this is even being de having to go to court, it's like the Inquisition. It's just insane because this is biological fact that's now being argued in court. So I'm not sure if that's positive because they've won, or just a sign of the insanity of the time that we're living in. Well, 
there's some optimism in it, so I, I, li- I like to end on an optimistic note, so thank you for that. Listen, um, our, our panellists have to be elsewhere, so I'll wrap up very quickly. Um, Think Tent starts again tomorrow at 9 o'clock with a debate on council tax. There's breakfast for those people who are hungover, so um, yeah, um, be here at 9 o'clock. But um, otherwise, l- please join me in saying thank you to the panellists. Well, Jeff.